Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Business Advantage Presents AT Law with Tammy Gaw. We have transitioned in this season to where we will now start discussing legal terms that permeate several topics, as opposed to topic-specific situations, which may have legal terminology within them. What I mean by that is, instead of discussing concussions and what the legal implication of them may be, we are switching now to a legal situation, negligence that will be threaded through several different situations that the athletic trainer may encounter. This makes it both easier, but more daunting to discuss and think about because it can be found in potentially every action we take as a professional. With that said, we will be discussing it thoroughly and providing plenty of examples of how best to safeguard yourselves. To make things simpler for your understanding and to help you keep track of all of these terms, We've created an AT Law Glossary. Head to opportune.at forward slash law glossary to get your free download today. Because the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcast is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. Negligence is defined as a failure to behave with the level of care that someone of ordinary prudence would have exercised under the same circumstances. The behavior usually consists of actions, but can also consist of omissions when there is some duty to act. Level of care in these situations is dictated by the reasonable person that we have mentioned extensively in our previous episodes, which is how a hypothetical person would likely behave in the same situation. Then, of course, there's the duty to act, where the following factors should be considered in determining whether someone lacked reasonable care. Was there foreseeable likelihood that the person's conduct will result in harm? The foreseeable severity of any harm that may ensue? And the burden of precautions to eliminate or reduce the risk of harm? Tammy, you've told us in a previous episode that there are four elements required in order to establish a negligence claim. Yes. So to refresh the listener's memories, although you should go back and listen to it, free to you, <laughs> hooray. Um, the negligence is defined as a failure to do an act, which a reasonably careful person would do, or the doing of an act, which a reasonably careful person would not do mm. under the same circumstances or similar circumstances to protect oneself or others from bodily injury, death, or property damage, Mm -hmm. which is just a fancy way of saying what you already said. (laughs) Either doing something you weren't supposed to do Mm -hmm. or not doing something you were supposed to do correctly. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the four elements of a negligence claim, here is your very uh, superficial glance in at first year Mm -hmm. law school. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're welcome and you're not paying anything for it. Um, so you have, <laughs> I know, yeah. to law so, school. <laughs> if anybody wants to talk about how much first year law school, you know where to find me. Yeah, there you go. Um, so if you're talking about a negligence claim, the elements to put forth a negligence claim are, as you said, a duty of care. And that's a duty that arises when the law recognizes a relationship between two parties. And because of that, one party has a legal obligation to act in a certain manner towards the other. So this can apply to business owners, manufacturers of certain devices, manufacturers of drugs, Mm -hmm. and also to medical services, among a litany of others. So then you you have that duty. Then you have to have breached that duty. So that's Mm -hmm. one, the party that has the duty to the other breaches it by failing to exercise reasonable care. Okay. So You can think of that in a furniture manufacturer using lead paint in the furniture they sell. Mm -hmm. They have a duty to the person who is buying their furniture 
to not poison them. <laughs> right, right, sure. <laughs> if, if we're just going to be really simple about yeah. it. But you could also see it in something like operating on a wrong knee. Ah, yes. So, and of that course, would be my favorite. Duty. Yeah, I, I believe that would be bad. There was a, um, there. I believe I'm getting the the details right because it, it was just funny to me. Um, and no, this does not have to do with someone operating on the wrong day. That's not why I find it funny. <laughs> I was really anxious but, to hear about this. <laughs> I, 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 plenty of people have accused me of being a very strange person, but that is not one of the reasons why. Um, but it was a, a WNBA player. I'm almost certain it was Rebecca Lobo. Um, When she had her knee surgery, she wrote up and down the other leg in black indelible marker, like not this leg, (laughs) and crossbones and things. Um, Because anyone that's been in an operating room can see, you know, if you're facing the opposite direction, maybe the bed is in a different direction Mm -hmm. than it was in pre-op. That doctor has a duty to make sure they're operating on the right knee. Yeah, so, and I mean, we can pain. laugh about it, but I've sat in on surgeries and they're putting oh, yeah. smiley faces on the right knee and X's on the wrong knee. I mean, this clearly they do this because it happened at some point. So we well, can sure, laugh about it now, but there's there's some victim out there who got their the wrong knee operated on. Yeah, or had a foot amputated, the wrong foot amputated. Yeah, oh you gosh. know, it's when you get into an operating room, here you go, athletic trainers that have not spent time in operating mm-hmm. rooms, but by the time the doctor gets in, the patient has already been draped. Yep. So a lot of times you're not seeing anything except a knee. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, or a shoulder. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you want um it the doctor has a duty yes. to check that. And I have actually been in pre-op with a doctor who, because you know, 19 different people come in and ask you what you're having done and mm-hmm. which side you're having it done. And the doctor came in for the final check and this guy had been cracking wise the entire time, thinking he was, you know, he's probably using his comedy to offset his nervousness. Sure. But he refused to give the doctor a straight answer. Hmm. And the doctor said, you got one more chance to tell me seriously which shoulder I'm operating on or I'm going to send you home. The guy cracked wise at him again. He goes, you're out of here. Next person up. Yeah. I mean, it's so it's, it's, it's a serious situation. It's, I mean, we're making light of it, but it's for real. Yeah. And, and, you know, we should, we should take that. We should take that, uh, that obligation seriously. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we got the duty. We've got the breach. Mm-hmm. Now we get into where the legal eyes gloss over because we're talking about causation. Mm. The third element is causation. Okay. And it means that the breach of the duty has to be the legal cause of the damages or harm suffered. Okay. Okay. So it, it means the breach had to have caused the injury is a very simplistic way to put it. Sure. Okay. And so within that, it can either be the actual cause of it or the proximate cause oh. of the damage. So okay. when you get, yeah, it's not just the cause, but there are, there are legal elements to those two. Sure. Actual cause is if not for the breach, there would not have been an injury. Okay. So, so like think in- of that like injury from a car accident. Okay. So if someone runs a stop sign and T-bones you, mm-hmm. you would not have the injuries you have had that person not run the stop sign. Okay. That makes sense. Like, yeah. So that's, yeah mm-hmm. that's an actual cause. Okay. Now, proximate cause exists if the kind or the extent of the injuries is reasonably related to the breach. So you could think of this as something like an athletic trainer seeing someone spill ultrasound gel on the floor mm-hmm. and they don't clean it up and they don't send anybody else to clean it up mm-hmm. and someone else slips on it and breaks uh, their wrist. Okay. Okay. So that injury is reasonably related to the breach of the duty of care. Okay. Okay. And so, that can be that could be something in a grocery store too. If mm-hmm. someone, if the manager of a grocery store saw, you know, someone, you know, break a thing of dish detergent or something like that on the floor and didn't clean it up and someone slipped on it. Okay. Then that's the kind of thing you're talking about. So the you know, the, the, the manager or the athletic trainer in our example, they still have the duty the of care down. and they breach it. Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. So they weren't yeah. like explicitly involved with it, but they could have done something to make it not get to where it did. Okay. Yes. You okay. as the athletic trainer have a duty to your, to, to your, the people in your athletic training room. It doesn't mm-hmm. just have to be the athletes to everybody. And 
if you know if that if that you have a duty to have the clean workplace the mm-hmm. you know the safety you can't be an OSHA violation or anything like that right so that's a pretty simplified but hopefully an easy way to think about yeah, that how causation mm-hmm. is okay. is measured and then the fourth element is damages and so this is where the fun stuff comes yeah. in she uses fun in quotation so <laughs> the injured person must have suffered an injury that can be remedied by money damages so you can't sue somebody to tell them because you want them to tell you you're sorry. Oh, 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 I see. Okay, okay, okay. Copy. Yeah. So and and it has to be it has to be quantified in some way. And sometimes that's easier than others. It can come in the form of medical bills. Mm-hmm. Um it can come in the form of lost wages. Um there are things like uh that are a little harder to put a a um a money value on things like pain and suffering, mm. loss of quality of life. Mm-hmm. So if you used to be an active person and for whatever the damage is, you now can't run like you used to or maintain the quality of life mm-hmm. that you used to have, you know, that can be something that, that can be a damage dollar amount with that. Um, yeah. Loss mm-hmm. of consortium, which is uh, um, people will add that uh, if, if a spouse, you know, or a partner loses uh, the other one, mm. um, or parents have sued for loss of consortium because of their kids. Mm. If a child has died um, as a result of someone else's negligence, a parent mm. can sue for loss of consortium. So that mm-hmm. there's that element. And there, there are other things, you know, that, that go into pain and suffering. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, those are the four primary elements. So a duty of care, a breach of that duty of care, causation, and damages. So I know that this yeah. is already kind of a lot to digest, but there's still more to define, right? So, so like what determines a breach or determining whether there actually was a duty to act or determining if there was actually an injury. So it it seems like, you know, negligence cases can become quite involved and kind of require like far more established reason than probably I would have ever thought because, kind of how freely the word is thrown around. So, I mean, do you have like any idea like what percentage of cases are negligence cases or like what percentage of cases are maybe a better one is successful negligence cases? Well, I think what's important for the listeners to remember, because no, there's not really a a state, you know, a status or a statistic that I could uh, pull pull down for that one. Mm -hmm. But it is easier to prove a negligence claim when you have a standard of care to compare the actions to. Mm. Hmm. So it's easier to determine what a defendant's duty was to a plaintiff, that's mm. the person bringing the lawsuit, when the defendant is a professional with externally defined standards of behavior. Yep. Now, that doesn't stop people from bringing lawsuits. I mean, they don't call some lawyers ambulance chasers <laughs> for you know, no reason at all, but to, to make it something very applicable to our listeners, it is easier to bring a, to, to prove negligence when there is a standard of care that to, to associate it with. Yeah. And so I think that that's like, you know, for the purpose of today's discussion, we're going to be talking about negligence as it relates to being a healthcare practitioner. So what are the different like statutes or rules that govern negligence when the topic is surrounding medical situations as opposed to just, you know, a, a business owner or any other person that may have a negligence claim brought against them? Sure. Well, as we've talked about before in previous episodes, there are certain professionals that are held to what is called the reasonably prudent professional standard of care. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to describe that is to say the defendants are judged according to how other similarly situated experts or professionals would behave in the same situation. Right. Now, because of that, and because each fact pattern is different, it isn't like you can look up, you know, you can't Google what is the reasonably professional, prudent, the reasonably prudent professional standard for athletic trainers. You're not going to get a lot. Well, Lex is not going to answer that for you. And I apologize (laughs) to whoever's, uh, Devices just turned on when I said that. (laughs) (laughs) So there's not like just some checklist that we can link in our show notes and say, here's here's the standard for the reasonably prudent professional athletic trainer. Yeah, 
I wish. And, it's, you know, it's not a bright line determined by mm-hmm. some outside organization like the NATA. Right. Um, partly because medicine advances so quickly and various sure. other things advance quickly. The uh, devices that we have at our disposal, the knowledge base around it, you know, um, there's, just, there's so much that gets advanced with medicine that by the time it became taught and properly educated, it would probably be obsolete, mm-hmm. which is why the, you know, we have to be acting in our field of expertise and we have to make efforts to learn what it is that is considered professionally right. the standard right. as an athletic trainer. Yeah. So if for, for, in order to bring something, a, a lawsuit, Using the reasonably professional, mm-hmm. uh, prudent professional standard. By the way, try and say that 19 times. Back. Yeah, right. <laughs> for, the reason, for the reason we just go RPP. Um, okay. We, we'll refer to it as RPP from here on out. Regionally professional person. Or reasonably yeah. prudent person. See? <laughs> Which P? Fun time. Yeah. Okay. See, don't you listeners all wish you got to do this to <laughs> So in order to bring a case that the that standard has been breached. Okay, the injured party would need to attest two things. First, the professional has to be acting in their field of expertise. So it doesn't matter if a doctor is walking down the street and does something negligent. They can't sue him under the reasonably prudent professional standard. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because he wasn't acting in the scope of being a doctor. That's kind of right. like where like Good Samaritan law comes in, right? Like That is exactly where Good Samaritan Perfect. law comes okay. in. That is exactly where Good Samaritan law comes in. Um, so the professional has to be acting in their field of expertise and the injured party has to attest to two things. First, that the athletic trainer was doing athletic trainery things at the time of the incident. Okay. Okay. So it had to be not just, you know, in their field, but within the scope of what they should have been doing. Mm -hmm. And that the incident was caused by something that a reasonably prudent athletic trainer would have done or would have refrained from doing. Okay. Okay. So this is the kind of thing that a trial would call on expert witnesses Mm -hmm. to testify about what would be considered reasonable in the situation, because the court is not going to know that. The lawyers are not going to know that. I mean, I'm one of, we believe, less than 10 people board certified as both an athletic trainer Mm -hmm. uh, and a practicing attorney. Maybe I should be an expert. Um, Yeah. Actually, I'm just, just going to throw that out there. <laughs> well, I actually got approached about it once, but I, I didn't want to be on that specific case. Um, but for what it's worth, there is a niche career to be had as an expert witness for athletic trainers. Um, it's a lot of work and requires, you know, kind of navigating within the legal community, but it, it can pay pretty well. So just to stick that in somebody's somebody's brain. Yeah. I mean, I've had like program directors or I've had people who, you know, are much further along in their careers than I am. And they've told me that they've been, you know, expert witnesses in legal situations, Mm -hmm. or they've been approached to be an expert, um, in part because of how long they've been a part of the profession, but also because they're an educator, they're, you know, have had a, hand in writing yeah. Katie proficiencies or whatever it is. So, I mean, absolutely. It makes sense that we would call upon people in our own profession and that there probably would be some type of, uh, you know, like you said, niche career available there. But so this is, so going back to like our ultrasound situation where someone saw it spilled on the floor, like this is anybody would say, you know, a, a reasonably prudent person would have cleaned that up. So in that situation, an expert witness would come and testify and say, yes, an athletic trainer would have cleaned that up. I know this is Uh oversimplification, but okay. So I think our listeners understand the concept of the slip and fall too. This is just a, you know, that's a somewhat, you know, I I used a a fairly simplistic example. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it is. It's it's right in line with the with the slip and fall situation. But right. there are, um, which you would not expect it. There's not a reasonably prudent professional grocery store manager. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. But it's a it's an easy way to describe the uh, the causation that happens when you're not the direct cause of what happened. But sure, sure. Okay, your actions. So then I'm also curious about what qualifies as gross negligence, because that's kind of a word that I've heard used a lot as well. 
Well, gross negligence is one step up from regular negligence. Um, And gross negligence is what we use to talk about an act that shows a severe and reckless disregard for the lives or safety of another person. Okay. So it's an act marked with complete indifference to the consequences of the act. Mm. Now, it's not to be confused with an intentional act to harm a person. Oh, okay. But it differs from regular negligence. So, you know, you remember regular or ordinary negligence involves the failure to provide an adequate level of care or caution. Mm-hmm. Gross negligence is far more severe in the level of indifference or apathy that is shown. Okay. Um, many athletic trainers will have noticed that participation waivers frequently waive actions of negligence against companies or operators, et cetera. But sometimes, even when a victim can't sue for ordinary negligence, they could bring a claim for gross negligence. Okay, that makes sense. So it's just kind of one step further. It's more severe. Uh-huh. It's, okay, so it's still within the realm of negligence. It's just yes. really disregarding everything that you've otherwise and been it's, told. Absolutely. And it's much more difficult to uh, uh, cover yourself from a waiver or with, there are insurance policies that will not cover claims of gross negligence. Right. Because it seems like negligence, and we'll get into this with our cases, but negligence can happen whether yes. intended or not, not intended, but it seems like gross negligence is almost, almost intentional. I, kn- I know you said it's different from intentional. Well, but... no, in, in the, in the scale of it, you know, negligence virtually by its existence is not intentional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, intentional torts and intentional claims, you know, those, those kind of actions are mm-hmm. at the other end of the spectrum and gross negligence is in the middle leaning more towards intentional. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause it's just like, you just didn't care. Yeah, of course. Okay. That makes sense. Well, you know, since you just said the word tort, I think that we need to quickly touch on the terms of tort and omission and commission. And uh, I do want to say that Tammy and I have worked together to put a law glossary together that is available for download for everybody. So if you want to go to our website, it's in the same place that you would find other resources that we have worked on together. But in case your head is spinning and trying to remember all of these words and (laughs) definitions, we have put a glossary together for you that's free to download. So a little shameless plug there. But um, you know, of course we learned all of these in admin class, but let's just refresh the memory Uh, in case everybody else forgot like I had. So a tort is a legal wrongdoing. An act of omission is when you fail to do something. And then an act of commission is when you do something that you aren't trained to do. So Tammy, can you give us some examples of those that are like in the athletic training world? Sure. And, you know, differing between omission and commission, you can almost think of their root words. Um, if you, an act of omission is when you omit something that you were supposed to do. And an mm-hmm. act of commission is when you commit something you aren't supposed to do. So it, oh. it can kind of be, yeah, it can be kept straight that way too. It's one of those rare times where language is helpful. That would have um, been really helpful so, to know when I was going through undergrad. <laughs> it's, it's amazing when I look back and go, my God. It's I, that simple. If I just had a practical application to do that, right. road memorization was not necessary. So omission would be when an athletic trainer fails to refer an athlete to the proper medical professional, or they okay. fail to know the medical history of an athlete that results in a medical emergency, you know, because of a pre-existing condition or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a failure to follow up. Okay. Now, in order to be liable for an act of omission, you must have had a duty to act in the first place. Hmm. Okay. So take your thought about the Good Samaritan laws and kind of step back from it a second. There is, if, if you are walking down the street, well, if the average person is walking down the street, no CPR, mm-hmm. or just somebody that took it, you know, through the PTA or something yeah. like that and, and have it. And someone goes down and that person does not go over to that person who they do not know Mm -hmm. and perform CPR. That person is not liable for an act of omission. Okay. Yeah. Because that person had no duty to act to that person. So in the, in the land of good Samaritan laws, and again, we're making this really simple, but hopefully just to sort of paint a context and a picture so people can see what's, see what's going there. Mm -hmm. Now, an act of commission would be like when an athletic trainer performs a treatment that is not within 
his or her legal bounds or mm-hmm. scopes, or if they were to administer a prescription medication, you know, that sure. kind of thing where sure. they are committing something that they are not technically trained to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I'm sure that we'll get far deeper into these kind of details when we start looking at the case studies, but I think that for now we have kind of our framework of thinking about how to approach this topic of negligence so that we at least have an understanding for this discussion. And and I appreciate you for breaking it down for us. (laughs) (laughs) It can be a lot to take in. So um, I've always kind of feel like, like negligence is sort of the low hanging fruits of lawsuits when it comes to our profession, because it seems like if a point cannot be made for any other type of claim, at minimum, they would be able to just claim negligence. And in fact, every case that we have shared in this season so far, going back to concussion and preventable and pre-existing conditions, has had a negligence claim in it. So maybe that's why it feels like the suit is so common because it like permeates all areas. Well, I I think there's probably something to be said for that. Um, And I think the reason that negligence seems most common is that other kinds of frequently bought, brought cases are not ones, (laughs) or bought, yes, (laughs) Um, um, are not ones that would necessarily typically affect athletic trainers. Things like slip and fall, automobile accidents, employment discrimination. Okay, okay. That applies to all businesses. Yeah. But when we're talking about, you know, really the overlap of athletic training and the law that we really want to draw um, the listener attention to Mm -hmm. uh, are the kind of cases that you can actively try and prevent. Okay. And so things that they can keep in mind and things they can use to show value to administrators and decision makers for their programs as well. You know, that's one of the reasons that we have focused on on the negligence cases. But at the same time, it is much easier to bring a negligence case than it is to bring an intentional tort case because that would require someone to have actually committed something intentionally against the plaintiff. Right. And like you said, it's even easier to bring a negligence claim against someone who has like professional standards. Yeah. So maybe it feels like low hanging fruit, fruit because we are professionals, but in the greater world of lawsuits, it's not necessarily because when you just said slip and fall cases or employment discrimination, you're right. Those are probably way more abundant. It's just that in our world, negligence Uh feels abundant, but it's because like you said, we inherently have a duty to act because we are a professional. Yes. And we are, we are liable for different things than other, you know, low hanging uh, fruit negligence cases might be. Okay. So uh-huh. I, I had um, read in an excerpt from a human kinetics book that said, quote, many different theories of negligence have arisen over the years in litigation, and these theories are limited only by the innovative thought processes of skilled attorneys. <laughs> and I, could, I couldn't help but giggle at that, but, um, you know, kind of seems spot on. So, um, you know... I, I mean, Tammy, I, I've got to imagine that you're just one of these attorneys that spends their entire day dreaming up new way to bring negligence suits, right? I mean, you said you weren't going to tell everybody my, my side your, hustle. Your, your side hustle. Um, yeah. So come on, man. I thought we were, thought we were better Every, friends. Everyone's in on our, our joke now. Yeah. I kind of resent the human kinetics book, except they're also not wrong. Um Never underestimate lawyers' abilities to find ways to try and make money. Mm. Um, as we're recording this, um, there, well, there, there was just recently an attorney in New Orleans uh, who tried to bring a lawsuit because of the blown call in the Saints-Rams playoff game. Oh, my gosh. No yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. This guy, yeah, he wanted the last minute and 47 seconds of the game replayed. Oh, of course. Yes. Because that would have changed the outcome, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, independent of that at all, if I might do a little riff, because the Washington Post, I actually was talking to a Washington Post reporter. It's my my first Washington Post appearance Um, because he called up and just said, well, this seems inane. Discuss. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. So even if you excuse the complete idiocy of 
packing up an entire professional football team and all the support staff to fly that week back to time zones. Oh, he literally wanted to play the last he minute 47. Literally wanted oh, the last you were saying minute in general, seconds. like he just wanted the Oh, you nope. literally meant nope. that. Oh, yes. Right. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sometime in the two weeks between the playoff game and the, and the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl. Of course. Yes. Um, but then you're looking at it going, okay, so the guy who was out with the concussion at the beginning of the game, I can't remember off the top of my head who mm-hmm. he was. Um, so he's better now. Does that mean he gets to play? Right. You just go through it's all a, these it, nuances. It's a five day long timeout. The coaches are like, okay, sure. We'll come back now that we've had five days. To it was ludicrous. But this guy that a, a lawyer, a practicing attorney, mm-hmm. um, probably thought that the uh, PR for that was worth the mockery. And so, yeah, never underestimate. I mean, we're talking about it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not saying his um, name because honestly, we don't know him, but we're talking right. about it. So maybe the PR was worth it for him. Uh, yeah, listen, I wouldn't know, but that's. I, I could see him getting disbarred for that kind of foolishness because it's just oh. not. That's just not. Mm. I mean, that would take a someone would have to really file a complaint against them. But it's just so it's so goofy. But taking that from the pure inanity and bringing it back to some practicality, mm-hmm. um, you know, one would expect to see new potential causes of action come into the zeitgeist as medicine develops. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're ta- you talk about AED. Mm-hmm. Uh, suits around AEDs. Well, obviously that was a new form of, you know, or a new a new element of a cause mm-hmm. when AEDs came into play, right? Because they did they weren't always like that. So if you talk about the difference between now and 25 years ago, mm-hmm. you know that's one of the benefits of the law. Really, yeah. there's a framework, but that framework allows for growth as the profession develops. So when we talk about the bright line rule that we, you know, talked about before, it has been. 17 years since I was in the full-time practice of athletic training. If Mm -hmm. I was to operate now in the year 2019 based on only what I knew in 2002, Mm -hmm. that I I can't do that. What would, what would have been considered reasonably prudent and professional in 2002 is not reasonably prudent and professional in 2019. So the, the concept of negligence and the framework of negligence has not changed. Sure. But the law, the law allows, allows causes of action to develop. That makes sense. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, like you said, that's why the framework is there so that Uh you can live and work within it, but it can also advance and it's not so, you know, written in stone that it can't now account for an AED or whatever advances that medicine may bring on. That that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that human kinetics book, it's, it's titled, uh, the handbook of neurological sports medicine, but it does go on to provide a pretty expansive list of negligence claims that are frequently made in sports related injury cases. And you can read all of them in our show notes, but I did want to list a few of them here just as additional examples to the ones that you've given Tammy, but also just to continue to allow our listeners to understand how negligence is considered and in, in the, the the different things and areas that it could be applied in. So a failure to be properly credentialed, obviously this makes sense. Um, the improper return to play, improper equipment or fitting, uh, improper screening or physicals, um, obviously medical malpractice. The uh, They even have one listed in here of failure to have an emergency action plan. So yeah. I think that um, you know, to your point, there is no limit of creativity on a lawyer's hand, uh, lawyer's side of it. But um, as we start to dive into some cases here, um, you know, there's it's obvious that you know th- there's numerous ways of how an athletic trainer could find themselves with a potential negligence suit brought against them, especially if it is led if it's left in the hands of a creative attorney. So. As we've stated, you know, there's no way to avoid yourself from being named in a lawsuit. We know that now, but you simply, you want to have the best answers prepared 
for when your time for a deposition comes up and and how to you know prepare and and to think through that and so I think that for the everyday athletic trainer to understand not only the elements that comprise a negligence case, but then starting to see various examples of it, they can start to be more vigilant in their daily setting to protect themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. So let's jump into some cases. And uh, the first one that we're going to look at is one that um, many of you may be familiar with because it made headlines and it's fairly recent. And by recent, I mean 2013. So it's the story of the NFL kicker Lawrence Tynes. And while he was playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2013, Lawrence had a toenail that was trimmed back on his kicking foot. And this is a procedure that he had had done probably 10 to 12 times previously, except this time he started to not feel well within about three days. And he was running a fever and overall he just was feeling sick. So he went back to the head athletic trainer, Todd Torricelli, who had initially performed the procedure to figure out, you know, what was going on. Now, according to Lawrence, meanwhile, I'd been getting treatment on it. That's when we started the regimen of take this, take that, take this every two days, and they were switching what they were giving to me. That's a quote from Lawrence in regards to this case. So it turned out that he had contracted MRSA, which then had to be treated with intravenous medication. He was put on the injury reserve for the remainder of that season, so he was paid his full salary And then he was released in March of 2014. So according to Lawrence, the infection ended his career because he could never kick with that foot again. And he's been quoted as saying, the impact is overwhelming. It brings you to your knees. The pain that you've got to strike the ball with pretty good force. I know that pretty quickly, I wasn't going to be able to kick again. Then I went out there a week later and said, okay, let's try this. It just hadn't worked out. And now he says, I'm reminded every morning when I step out of bed on my feet that I had MRSA. It hurts every single morning, every day, and I have a constant reminder on a daily basis. So in 2015, Lawrence filed a lawsuit against the Buccaneers organization naming the athletic trainer and stating that he was the source of the infection, claiming unsanitary conditions. His lawsuit was for $20 million, which was essentially claiming six to seven years of lost work that he would have had had he continued being able to be a kicker. And after nearly a two-year legal battle, they ended up settling and agreeing to jointly stipulate and agree to dismissal, and the details of the settlement have not been revealed. So Tammy, when you hear me talk about that, what do you feel is important? Well, this is one of the few times where I, for a variety of reasons, I can't address a specific case, but I think the fact pattern here is something that athletic trainers are concerned about. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, MRSA is a very serious condition and has to be more aggressively addressed than might have been common or even required 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. Um, you know, there are OSHA standards about how to prevent the spread of MRSA in the workplace, not just in a medical workplace, but in a lot of, you know, in every mm-hmm. workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are guidelines for medical providers about how to address and treat uh, what are called multi-drug resistant organisms, or MDROs. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mayo Clinic's guideline for their guidelines for control of MDROs are 16 pages long. Wow! Just for the guidelines of control of MDROs. Yeah. So obviously, we have to think about treating the patient and stopping the spread. Mm-hmm. But we have to be diligent about preventing the infection from ever being introduced. Sure. Um, so this is easier for some athletic trainers and positions than others. Mm-hmm. If you're at a high school with a small athletic training room that also serves multiple purposes, I'm thinking laundry or storage, something mm-hmm. like that, it can be harder to keep that as clean as a big-time college or professional athletic training room can and should be. Sure. Obviously, the big X factor is the athletes. You know, human beings can, will bring this, can bring this infection in. Mm-hmm. Um, and no amount of keeping a sterilized operating room is going to prevent what another human being walks in, sure. um, you know, having yeah. been in contact yeah. with. Um, but recognizing the symptoms 
and treating them immediately and aggressively can do nothing but save you trouble in the long run. And that involves understanding what might be different about an MDRO, Mm -hmm. specifically MRSA, than what might be, you know, staff. Mm -hmm. There are, I mean, you know, just even generic staff, Mm -hmm. not the MRSA level, is very difficult to keep under control. Anyone who's ever worked with wrestlers knows that. Yeah, Um, yeah, I mean, it just, that, that is a reality and a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so encouraging athletes to be cleaner, mm-hmm. um, explaining why they should consider it a priority is also something to consider. And finally, and this is just one of those things where, you know, I, I want to give people the ideas of thinking outside the typical box, mm-hmm. but having a working relationship with this support and janitorial staff at your facility yeah. is not a bad idea. Right. Now, there are many reasons to have a good relationship, not least because they're colleagues at your job and do an incredible amount of work behind the scenes and should be appreciated. (laughs) Um, But the work they do, we can't control. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you have cleaning materials that are being used in one element of the building that are being dragged, that are dragging in to your athletic training room and things like mops or something like that, uh, towels, laundry, that's why I use the example of, um, you know, of laundry, mm-hmm. getting to know and having a good relationship with the janitorial staff is not a bad, is not a bad thing at all. Absolutely. So, you know, the, there are a lot of realities that we cannot control, mm-hmm. but we're back to doing everything we can to prevent a situation from arising. Yeah. And the fact that you work to prevent as much as possible and as much as within your control, mm-hmm. that can be used if you're faced with a MRSA or infection-related accident. Mm-hmm. And who knows, you might change your whole organization or school or campus's policy for the better if you bring a potential problem to the attention of the administration or management. Yeah. So that, you know, that that can be an asset again that we bring to the table. And of course, as a protective, document, document, document. Mhm. Of course. You know, document when things were last cleaned, know when things were last sterilized. Mm-hmm. If you think there's been a situation where someone or something that, you know, really seemed very say infectious but contaminated sounds mm-hmm. so outbreakish. <laughs> um, but, you know, the first thing you should do is sterilize and sanitize and clean up after that, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely blood, anything like that. Just think about it in that frame of work and, and, you know, have, have the documentation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I like this case because it's one that potentially our listeners were um, possibly already familiar with, but also because it's not an example of an egregious act. I think that sometimes it's really obvious when we should or shouldn't be doing something, but then there's other situations where, it could have been out of our control or there's just a lot of gray area. You know, all of the things that you just said are perfect examples of the athletic trainer could have been responsible or, you know, whatever it is. And I I have a hard time believing that any athletic trainer would knowingly create a non-sterile environment and risk exposing themselves or their athletes to MRSA. But the possibility of having an open wound on your toe, showering in the locker room and then contracting something, you know, that possibility is there. And we, we don't have an account from, you know, the athletic trainer's perspective and, you know, how the fever situation was handled or, but again, I think that most athletic trainers, at least the ones who have been practicing as long as, as this one had would know to consider an infection when those signs presented themselves. But, you know, regardless, this escalated to where it did. And, and again, an example of we can't control who names us in a lawsuit, but you know, this, this situation I could see happening at any number of settings, be it secondary school or collegiate, or, I mean, honestly, even industrial settings, like you said, there, there are OSHA standards for this. So Uh Tammy, like, what are the things that we can do to protect ourselves in situations where you aren't necessarily thinking that it could be catastrophic? And so your immediate thought is it to be keeping contemporaneous, contemporaneous notes, for example? No, that's a great question. Um, I have noticed more uh, education around infection issues like MRSA. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, exposed to it. Well, I was working with someone who had it. Mm-hmm. And that was just, you know, back 10 years ago. Uh, and I had not had a lot of education around it. And oh, I yeah. found that there was a lot more information right about when it's starting to really kind of crank around. Um 
you know, and that more education is becoming vital and more and more relevant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to be too alarmist, I made a joke about outbreak, but I think that athletic trainers have to be even more concerned about potential infections in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking back to USCDC um, considered antibiotic resistance to be one of their top concerns. Mm. And they claim that infections with drug-resistant bacteria may lead to longer and more expensive hospital care and that the risk of dying from infections would increase as well. And Mm. that has to do with the amount of antibiotics that are in our systems because of sometimes our food. And so drugs are literally, infections are uh, morphing and they're adapting. Mm -hmm. And so that's a reality that athletic trainers have to think about is Mm -hmm. that just like there's a new flu strain every year, don't discount the fact that you knew how to treat something 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. So more, more and more education is, is key. Um, and again, you know, you don't necessarily have to take a note after everybody that leaves that says, I checked and they didn't have MRSA. You yeah. know, it's not necessarily like that. But if you think about keeping a clean environment and documenting that you are aggressive in keeping that environment mm-hmm. that way, that's the kind of helpful documentation that can, uh, that can help. Well, and and to your point, like just forming habits within your professional realm that is just best practices so that you don't always have to be taking notes or, you know, whatever it is. And and not to say that you shouldn't be taking notes because obviously we want to document things, but knowing for yourself, this is a habit. Like I, I just, I wipe down after every single patient encounter. So and I have been doing uh-huh. it for 10 years straight. You know, if you could testify to that, it's like, well, on April 22nd at four in the afternoon, when Joe Bob, Jim Smith laid on your table, did you wipe down after him? And it's like, do I have a note that I did specifically? No, but I know that it is my practice. And for the past 10 years, I've been doing that. So I think maybe the effort should be made to, you know, what are best practices? And, and this has kind of been your your tone the whole time is how do we just maybe elevate the ways in which we practice so that it's not always at the forefront of our mind of, Oh, I need to take a note on this or, Oh, I need to, you know, do this or that or whatever. It's more just, this is, this is how I practice as an athletic trainer. Yeah. And to take that one step further, um, you know, suits can be brought. Maybe, maybe you get named in a suit that um, from a place that you no longer work. So maybe you don't have access to all of your notes and things like that. Touché. But if you know that your practice was to do that, you can honestly sit in a deposition around the stand. And mm-hmm. when they ask, what did you do on Wednesday, April 12th? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't have access to anything. Else, but what I do know is that this is how I behave mm-hmm. in those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sometimes that's that's all you got with respect to something. Yeah. And moreover, like you'll have witnesses of that behavior. So if they go and ask other people who you've worked with, they'll say, yep, Alicia always wipes down tables after she like in every in all four years I worked with her, she wiped down after every single patient. So, no, Uh I don't remember that day or that afternoon, but I know that it's a common practice for her. So I wouldn't have any reason to believe that she didn't do it with that one. Also, I'm applauding you from my home office. (laughs) Um, So the next case I want to bring up is kind of more out of principle than necessarily the details of the case. So I'll, I'll kind of make it quick, but the premise is a cheerleader comes to her athletic trainer indicating that she had been dropped on her head from a stunt and wasn't feeling well. The athletic trainer told her that she was fine and she was later diagnosed with a severe concussion. Now, the lawsuit claimed negligence on behalf of the district to hire personnel who were properly trained in concussion management and of the athletic trainers who did not recognize concussion symptoms and thus failed to provide appropriate medical care. Now, the point that I want to make here is that in all situations, we bring our own bias. And sometimes that includes discrediting a certain type of athlete based on our believed level of athleticism of either their sport or their work ethic or whatever it is that you've seen of them or of their sport previously. And now, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that that's what happened here, but I've seen plenty of social media postings about the sport of cheerleading not being taken seriously. And 
that can be any number of things, you know, whether it's tennis or, uh, you know, other, you know, non-contact sports. And I, you know, this doesn't have to just be, just be cheer. Like I said, dance, uh, quidditch, in fact. Um, so <laughs> the point is, you know, I think that we need to let our biases go when we're working in settings with that type of athlete. But, you know, Tammy, what's your feedback here? Well, first, I want to eat. I want to meet the first athletic trainer working full time for a Quidditch team. Yeah. Uh, I want to take that person out for drinks, non-alcoholic or alcoholic, whichever yeah. they prefer. I covered um, it when I was at UCLA. It's a club your sport. They have a national championship. Yes, yes, it's for real. They are chasing <laughs> a gold snitch around. I want people. If you've listened to this episode, I want you to to tweet at us or tag Please. us or. Tag me on Twitter (laughs) with your Quidditch coverage stories. Oh my God. It's okay. okay. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I need need to see this. I need to see this. Yes. Oh my God. That just made my day. Um, (laughs) But in in all seriousness with the, with the, the question at hand though, the industry is finally catching up. I think with the reality that cheerleading nowadays is as risky if not more than many other sports Mm -hmm. that people think of as conventional. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was a gymnast, right? I understand what my risks were. You know what I would never do? What, what is not in my repertoire or in on my bucket list Mm -hmm. is to have someone shove my feet up in the air so that I can do (laughs) a, you know, one or two backflip with any variety of twists and trust that X number of people are going to catch me (laughs) on my fall from somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 feet in the air. Absolutely. I hear you. (laughs) Divers dive into water. Mm -hmm. You know, gymnasts, we don't have, if you fall, you fall on the mat, but you're not relying on other people to catch you. So that rant notwithstanding, your feelings about where cheerleading should or should not be is entirely irrelevant. What you think of the presence of cheerleading at your event does not matter to the medical, legal, and ethical obligations you have to them as a sport Mm. and to them as athletes. Mm. Love that. Yeah. Because I have had several concussions and I know cheerleaders have had several concussions and an athlete is an athlete. Whether something is considered a traditional contact sport or not has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Some people think that cross-country runners, they brush them off. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to talk about an overuse injury, yeah, you go to cross-country runners. Right. Um, you know, none of that has anything to do with your obligation to provide adequate medical care. You mm-hmm. don't get to make the decision what is and is not a sport in your 1950s to 80s viewpoint. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any sympathy for anybody who, who has anything to say about what they think. Yeah. Whether it's related to contact sports that has been decided outside of your realm. Yeah. We, you're, <laughs> we really don't care what you have to say about that. You're right. going to operate as if it is because it is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for free CEUs, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.